When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're experiencing performance anxiety with me, Mark Shea. This week, we feature Trey Gunn. He's one of the few touch guitar players around. He's played with King Crimson, John Paul Jones, Pussifer, and more, in addition to his own solo work. We talk about looking at his crotch, how he met Robert Fripp and King Crimson, his worst onstage experience, and some performance anxiety dreams. There's all that and a lot more. Here's Trey Gunn. Hello, this is Trey Gunn, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. That sounds like a cell phone message. (laughs) Actually, you're probably looking at my crotch. I I am actually right now. Which might be. I wish I I wish I could give you something. <laughs> augment augment that for you. Here, I, I've got something for you. How's that? Oh, Ted Nugent album, awesome. That'll work. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing strange about uh, Ted Nugent album in your crotch. No, that that works for me. And I've had this since 1975, actually. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh! So it was. Uh, Ted Nugent, a, a early favorite for you? Uh, yeah. You know, I grew up in Texas in the hard rock scene. So Ted Nugent, Blue Oyster Cult, oh, Black Sabbath, UFO. I mean, we had a lot of uh, somewhat obscurest kind of, uh, well, it was it was hard rock at the time was what we called it come down uh, a lot of canadian bands i saw rush rush was my first concert in 1975 you know rush was my first concert too but it is 19 or 1988 the presto yeah. tour so 2112 oh man that's yeah that's the glory and, days and thin lizzie opened the show oh my oh wow so it, that that kind of sealed my fate as a bass player because <laughs> Their basses just sounded incredible. And, um, you know, I can't remember what the sound was like, but I know we didn't have drums just didn't do what they did back then that they do now. So the bass was just enormously monstrous. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. That's well, you had two amazing uh, Phil and Getty. Same show. That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, and both singers. That you know what that that's right yeah that's true so it's that's a heck of a first concert I mean I, I did see Rush as my first concert but it was the Presto tour so they had mellowed out a little bit but uh, but you know hey I'll take it so yeah so I yeah. I had read somewhere that your first band was a punk band was that right uh no okay <laughs> my. My my first rant band was Regent, 
King and the and the subtitle was King Lords of Rock and Roll. Okay. From like nineteen around the same time, seventy four, seventy five. And um we were we were kind of a mishmash of everything from all these rock bands that I was just saying, plus Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and uh, you know Rod Stewart and Early Faces and we we played okay. all these songs, but also Stones, a lot of Stones and Beatles and um, and then it was funk time too. So Texas was kind of a weird, isolated place, but we had a lot of um, funk. Even though it was either you were either excruciatingly white. <laughs> or or Hispanic, and at the time you would have been Mexican American, right? Uh, but somehow there was still a lot of Sly and the Family Stone and stuff around. Um, so that was my first band, and then then uh, when I eventually went to college, which I went to college a couple of years later than everybody else in the world uh and moved up to oregon that's when i i I had already gotten into punk stuff Uh, we actually had somewhat of a punk band in texas called q um but uh and we played uh like new wavy stuff and but also iggy and um stuff like that and then when i went up to oregon then it kind of the punk scene really kind of broke loose because of course all the um the la punk scene would go up and down the west coast so we saw x and black flag and oh wow um all these uh circle jerks pretty heavy hitters would come through eugene because there really was nowhere between san francisco and portland there was really no gig except for eugene so that's kind of when i got a little more punky at you know to complicate it at the same time i was studying classical music in the university the, yeah, how did how did those two worlds mesh? Did it- they didn't. <laughs> they they meshed because I was there, you know, and and um, they meshed because of me. You, you know, in hindsight, I wasn't the only character doing that at the time. Okay, okay, um, but uh, you know, at the time, it felt like I was alone. Actually, the, uh, another guitar player that um, we played together for a couple of who was um, my same age and kind of kind of doing the same thing uh, path as me was uh, Paige Hamilton of Helmet. Oh, okay, yeah. I don't know if you know that band Helmet. Absolutely. Paige was Paige was also in Eugene at the same time. Oh, he was in Band of uh, Susans too, right? Wasn't he? I think you're right. Yeah, and uh, he was more of a um, he was more of a jazz player than I was. I kind of had and still do have just a theoretical knowledge of, of how jazz works, but it's not quite in my veins like like it was for Paige. So, yeah. so, so when did you start studying with Robert Fripp? That was with uh, the Guitar Craft. And- yeah, that was a, that was about another four or five years later. Okay. I pretty much was about to leave Oregon and uh, either move to L.A. or New York. Because uh, that's what you did at the time. Now you'd be crazy to do either of those things. <laughs> uh, but at the time, that just seemed like, you know, I wasn't going to go to Nashville. I knew that. Yeah. Um, and before I kind of made my plans, I had um, actually, I had already thought um, I, I had l- learned enough about kind of um, what would you call it? Like under the hood about music. Okay. Uh, enough that I knew that there was a lot more under the hood that I was curious about. And so I, um, 
but it wasn't so clear like where you go at, at, at the time. You know, I had to kind of make up my own uh, curriculum because most of the music that I really loved was unacceptable uh, for going under the hood. Okay. Um, uh, so, but I, I, I wanted to keep uh, studying for lack of a better word. And I thought, how silly is it that if it was 300 years ago, you would figure out who were the masters and you would go to them and ask, get them to teach you. And I thought, why do we not have that now? Why does Brian Eno or John McLaughlin or, of course, now we do have that, but in, in, in the eighties, it just really didn't exist, especially with the punk rock um, ethos, which is you don't learn anything. Right. Do it yourself. Anybody, you know, and, and to be self-taught was the virtue it, with rock music too, but um, it really was the punk, uh, punk aesthetic, punk ethos. And, uh, but I thought, you know, I should, I, I, I want to learn more. So I made up a list of, of all my kind of musical heroes and who I thought was, I thought, you know what, screw it. I'm going to just contact them. And, um, I made up my list and I kept looking across the list and like, yeah, he's good, but I don't know what you, I don't know if he could tell you what you're, what he's doing. I don't know if, if Eno or David Bowie or Peter Gabriel, you know, and, 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 um, Fripp's name just kept rising to the top of the list. I didn't like everything he did, but I was a pretty big fan of some of it. And I just thought he seems like a guy you could actually, he, he could, he could articulate his thing for you. Adrian, amazing player. And eventually I met Adrian and Tony Levin, amazing player. Would you go to them to have them articulate something? It just didn't occur to me. And then lo and behold, so Fripp's name kept rising to the top of the list. Um, not really thinking that I would, I wasn't ready to act on it. I was just kind of mentally and then physically making a list. And then eventually I saw he was teaching. I thought, Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm going, you know, there was a tiny little ad in the back of, of downbeat magazine, maybe, a, maybe an inch long that said, you know, Robert's teaching these five courses in West Virginia. Wow. Um, West Virginia. How did that come yeah, about? Come for a week. Uh, he was involved with, a, a community that gave courses, a variety of courses down there and they just had a, they just had the facility. Okay. Um, so we, they had the facility and the vibe. And so that's where I first met Robert was 1985 or six. It's hard. I, I have a hard time remembering probably 85. It, it was pretty life changing just, just in with, within just a couple of days, but it was five solid days. Okay. And it pretty, it pretty much undid. Um, I wouldn't say that it undid a bunch of the work that I had done um, studying, but it, it just added a whole other um, dimension to the, the technical knowledge I was kind of operating with. Was it an, an intense course? Cause he seems like a really intense kind yeah. of person. Yeah. Yeah. It was intense. Even now I would look at it and say it was intense at the time. It was overwhelmingly intense, but now I know how to, I know how to work for 12 hours a day at the time. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know how to you know practice for 12 hours and just, uh, you know, ring every drop out of the experience. Um, and yeah. And were you studying with just a regular six string guitar at the time? Yeah, it was, uh, I, I played a variety of instruments at that point, guitar, piano, and, uh, uh, bass. 
And uh, this was just acoustic guitar, six string acoustic guitar. And now it's now Guitarcraft is fairly well known. You, 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 but we didn't know at the time that he was going to give us a brand new tuning to work with. In fact, he didn't even know it until I'm not sure, like a six months or a year before, he had only just kind of discovered this new tuning. And that was that was the first revelation for me that I had been using the wrong tuning on the instrument my whole life. And and here's what actually suits me. Did he ever give any insight into how that new tuning came about? Cause I've, I've heard oh, yeah. of it, but I don't know a whole lot about it. Yeah. I mean, what you've heard is the same story I've heard <laughs> over and over and over again, that he was in the sauna at, uh, um, something Apple spas in New York city and the tuning whizzed by his head while he was sitting there. And there it was. Um, <laughs> however you want to, you know, look at that. It's it, the tuning is based on violin, viola, cello tunings, um, with a little alteration to make it um, fit on the guitar better. But it's a it's a fifth a fifths based tuning rather than fourths based, which is what guitars is a standard guitar tuning. But it puts it puts you in the uh, the cello, viola, violin area rather than uh, the guitar banjo area. That's the the least technical way I can say it. Okay. And the, 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 the traditional guitar tuning, as far as I'm concerned, has blues embedded in it. That makes no sense, matter yeah. what you do with it. There's still though that, um, the, the, the idiomatic language of the blues is hovering under there in the fifth space tuning. That is not there anymore. It's a, it's a more, um, kind of open non-blues <laughs> you can't really play the blues in it which suits me just fine because the blues does not suit me and in fact i i i was always trying to get away from it and i couldn't figure out because it didn't suit me and i couldn't figure out why i was always playing and no matter what i did eric clapton was leaning over my shoulder <laughs> all the time and i was always looking at for how to that just didn't quite suit me. And then as soon as I put on the new tuning, I was like, you cannot play the blues with this. You can fake it because okay. it's just notes, but it's not, it's just not the same. It just doesn't have the same, uh, raw in it. Okay. Okay. So that, that suit, that suits me great. And how long after that did you switch to the Chapman stick? Um, it seemed like a long time at the time, but now it really was only just a couple of years by 87. Okay. Um, I had already been, I had actually already been interested in the stick for many, many years, not, not many, many years, but several years from, uh, first hearing King Crimson's discipline record right. from 1980, I believe where Tony Levin was playing the stick and I had actually heard the stick earlier, but I didn't know what it was, but really that record, the stick kind of blew my mind and eventually i thought the thing that attracted the most me the most to it was the tuning which is a fifth space tuning it's okay. exactly the bass tuning is exactly the same as the way robert tunes his guitar just down an octave so my original interest in that was i wonder about that tuning and then i was actually going to try to get a stick but i met robert and put his tuning on uh what he calls the new standard tuning on my guitars and on my basses. And I didn't have the immediate need to play the stick, but eventually I did. And, um, it was, it was like a big homecoming. I, I, uh, <laughs> I realized that all the, my first week or two on the instrument, I realized my, 
all these years, I had really just been on the wrong instrument. I'd been trying to do the things that I could do on this instrument through the guitar, through the bass, through the piano, through combinations of them or recording wise. And now here's the instrument. So that would have been 87, really, really committed to it. 1988. So geez, what is that? Thir- is that 30 years? Uh, yeah. 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 This yeah. year, that's 30 yeah. years. Could yeah. you, uh, could you describe a little bit about what the yeah. chatting stick is? Yeah. And to, 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 to make it more complicated within about three years, I switched to a different instrument called the, the war guitar, which is similar and I'll describe it. So we kind of, we, we, we like to call the, the, the family of instruments touch guitars and they're played by what we call tapping. So instead of, um, it's a stringed instrument, just like a guitar, relatively like it. I'll, I'll describe some more <laughs> differences in a second. But okay. basically, in, on guitar, you use one hand. Let's say most of us play right-handed. You use your left hand to fret the strings, and that tells you that tells the guitar which pitch you're playing. And then the right hand plucks the string, and that articulates the sound. So it's a double. To double two, it's, it takes two different actions. Fretting gives you the pitch, plucking gives you the sound. On the, the, the touch guitars, you fret with a percussive uh, attack, and it does both. So you, you, you kind of, I'm going to use the word slam. You do not slam your fingers onto the fretboard, but <laughs> okay. it might look like that. We call it tapping. Okay. Or what, what, what old uh, guitar players in the 70s and 80s would call like a hammer-on. Right. So right. you you can have both hands on the fretboard, and you're you're pushing with some force uh, the string against the fret with a like a like a kind of a marimba action, and you get that produces the sound, gets this the vibration, gets the energy going in the string, and where you do that gives it the pitch. So you have all. Um, eight of your fingers, thumbs being behind the neck, available on the fretboard. And it produces a... a, a, I think of it as... One of the analogies I like is kind of like if you were on the inside of the piano touching the strings or like little hammers on the guitar neck. It's a very common technique now. A lot of guitar players use it. A lot of bass players use it in addition to regular playing. But these instruments, these touch guitars, are made especially for that. And then the other big difference is um, many of the models have two sets of strings. So there's a set of bass strings, and then there's a set of guitar strings, and they're stereo. So you can, because you've got two hands, you can play two different lines at the same time. You can play bass notes and melody notes and, and play contrary lines and different lines. You can play chords in one hand and melody in the other hand depending on your imagination and your your willingness to work hard enough to be able to do it well that's a, that's fascinating so how many how are there different models or different strings yeah and- the, the, tr- the traditional the original chapman stick was 10 strings okay and i started with a 10 string and then they then he came out with a 12 string model of which you could do different configurations but i had five bass strings and seven guitar strings Okay. Kind of, I'm making air quotes because it's not really guitar; it's just top <laughs> and bottom. Right. And um, then when I met this guy Mark War, who makes the instruments that I play now and have played for 25 something years, um, my instrument. It, also, the thing about the stick, it, it looks just like a stick. There's no guitar body on it. My instrument actually has a guitar body, so it's 
it's a little bit different, but the playing of it, it's, it's identical. Um, I play a 10 string. So I, I have five bass strings and five guitar strings and the, 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 the pitches do overlap. So you have, you can do a lot of kind of harp like things because you can play high notes on the bass side as well as low notes on the guitar side. So yeah, without getting too complicated, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah. So, and, and you've had to change the way you, you play the, the, uh, war guitar now. Is that correct? I mean, it was, there's a, I think I read there was an, you had an injury or, or something and, and now you, you play it sitting. Yes. Yeah, right? So, so, so yeah. So I'll give you the background on that story. Um, without going, I don't know, without getting too long, complicated <laughs> and boring. Okay. Um, I played the instrument for a long time. I have a few other friends who played it and then, um, Actually, there's 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 kind of a, a, a core group. There's a lot of players around the world now, and a lot of different versions of this kind of instrument. There's some made on the East Coast. Uh, there's some guys in Germany. There's a guy in Australia. So it, that's why we kind of just switched to this family of calling it a family of touch guitars. Um, and there's a kind of a core group of us who have been working on the tech, technique of how you do it because it's. Um, if you want to play violin or if you want to play piano, there's hundreds of years of pedagogy of, of people um, working through the ergonomics and, you know, what happens when you play the piano for 60 years? Yeah. How do you, how do you, um, how do you practice it? How do you learn to do all of these incredibly articulated complex actions without destroying your body basically. And we didn't even have a primer on how to even articulate a single note. So, um, and I'm crediting my buddy Mar Marcus Reuter for really kind of dissecting that and figuring out just how you make one note and how do you get to another note? Um, wow. but the, but the, um, the, so there, we're running kind of running on not very much information Okay, jumping forward now, I've been playing it for 15 years, 20 years, and my wrists are just getting messed up. My wrists are, are uh, really sore. I've got um, what I, it turns out is was not carpal tunnel, but you, what you call tennis elbow, where my elbows are just aching all the time. Ah, okay. And so the, 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 which there, there's a lot of factors involved. One of them is obviously computer use. Another carrying heavy bags around the world, yeah. <laughs> which is as much of my profession as it is playing. And then the angle of the wrists reaching around to play this enormous neck because there's 10 strings on the neck and having a, a, an awkward angle. And it got so bad that I really thought I'm not going to be able to play this thing by the time I'm 70, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not doing well. So I started just by chance uh, the, actually the way the story, this is turning into a long story. I hope that's that, okay. That's fine. That's fine. Um, the, the, by kind of a quirk of other needs, I ended up with two instruments on stage with King Crimson in the early two thousands where I had Mark war had built me a fretless version of the instrument. So I had a fretted version and a fretless version and oh they sounded God. very, very different. And I used the fretless version a lot with the, the last King Crimson record I did the power to believe.
So I wanted to have them both on stage. So I was kind of flipping back and forth between songs and, and, you know, sometimes having fun, like, oh, I don't normally play this one on fretless. Let's play it on fretless tonight, or let's do the, this part on, on fretted. And at one point there was a piece that we were working on that we were doing, and I really wanted to have them both. Okay. So I wore the fretless one and I got a keyboard stand, and put the fretted one up on a keyboard stand. So now it's horizontal sitting. So I could just kind of walk over to it and tap a few notes here and there. And I really liked it. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. The fretboard is at a different angle. The strings are at a different angle. The strings normally are kind of vertical in front of you. And now they're horizontal out in front of you. And after I went back home, after that tour, or I, I just had a hunch that, man, if you really wanted to go crazy, you could actually play the whole instrument just like this. And when I started playing around with that, I realized, look at my wrists. They feel great. They're at a beautiful angle, just like a pianist plays it. There's no bend in the wrists. And when I started to experiment more with playing like this, just laying it on my lap, I discovered that um, what we call the dynamic range, which is the ability to go from very soft to very loud, was so much wider when I played the instrument horizontally oh, okay. than from vertically. And I thought, that can't be. I must be doing something funny. And when I kind of broke it down with Mark War and some other friends, the only conclusion I could come to is that the wrists, when they're at the angle of normally playing, you just don't have that much control because of the angle of the wrists and what the tendons are having to do. That as soon as I play the instrument horizontally, the wrists are free gravity is in my favor and when i played it sounded terrible because there were notes jumping out that were too loud and other notes that were too quiet and so i worked on it for a couple of years and that seemed like a vast improvement and i'm i know i'm running running on uh, this story's running away from us <laughs> That's but quite all right at the same time i was it was recommended to me by my acupuncturist friend randy claire to uh check out this Aikido dojo down the street because the guy, it may help my wrists. Okay. And so that's how I got into Aikido about 10 or 11 years ago was, was um, I was curious about it because I had been told that it could be, could be helpful for strengthening and um, both strengthening and loosening up the wrists, wrist. And that was my secret. That was kind of the other secret weapon. Oh, okay. Um, and that was the case. So I really, I do still play the instrument standing up in the traditional manner. It's a lot more rock and roll. And, but I, but I do most of my playing now when I'm at home in sessions, uh, and special gigs when it does suit it, uh, I play horizontally. Well, uh, playing horizontally, has that changed the way you compose music with the guitar? Yeah. 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 I haven't, it, it's only very recently that I've been kind of uh, allowing myself to really go for it. Um, and I'm actually working on a, a bunch of new compositions right now. I can, I could do them either way. Um, but it's, it's kind of, it's changed the way I think about the instrument and, and how I, you can, you can see the whole string and the whole string is available to you with such great ease that I, I look at the instrument now, I look at the strings, not it's tricky using the words horizontal and vertical, because depending on how you hold the instrument, how you think of it, 
But um, usually we think of the guitar as a series of strings and your patterns go horizontal across the strings. Right. I don't, I don't think of the guitar at all like that anymore. I think of it as I, my thinking starts with a mono chord and just one string and all the things that you can do on the one string and how you break up the scale of one string. So I don't think of patterns kind of across the strings. I just think of uh, one string and then here's another one just like it. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, but yeah. yeah, the geometry of the thing is now very different. I see the whole fretboard as one long thing as opposed to here's a chunk here. And, 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 and a lot of that is of course from having played for 40 or 50 years, but, but still having it horizontal out in front of me, just, it makes it more like a, a piano as opposed to playing a saxophone where the notes are kind of hidden inside these different patterns. Okay. Okay. I think, I think I'm still working. <laughs> I'm still working on it. Well, that's the thing that seems amazing to me is that here's this new piece of equipment that was designed and built and people are learning to play it. It's not like, Hey, I've got this idea. It, it was kind of like, I, I've got this idea for a guitar and now we have to, or for an instrument. Now we have to learn how to play it. And then yeah. you have to come up with a completely new way to play it because uh, of, of the, the injury. So you're in yeah, like uncharted also, territory. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be even more um, blunt than that. The way that it should be played is horizontally. <laughs> so, okay, it's, so the way to, it's the way to play it as far as I'm concerned. So you've discovered you know, the way it's to, up do to it. me. It's up to me to prove that to everyone. <laughs> Especially you know, even the guys I, that I, created the instruments. By doing something just out, uh, outrageously amazing, I'm still working on that. But as far as as far as ease of articulating and expressiveness, and as far, I, I, I'm convinced that that playing it horizontally is uh, infinitely, you know, the, to the power of three better. Okay, and well, I've seen some videos of you on YouTube playing solo with it horizontally, and you've got quite a rig set up. Uh, it's, it's a mixture of all kinds of stuff. Looks like some uh, stomp boxes, some laptops, all kinds of stuff. How how hard is it to keep track of all that? And since we're on, you're on the show, performance anxiety. Do you get performance anxiety? Because it looks like you do a lot of uh, sampling to start with of your own music. You'll start playing a pattern and uh, play that through a loop, and you'll just con continue. Is that nerve wracking every time you do it, or are you just kind of used to it by now? Several things. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you, the instrument on its own is already terrifying enough. Um, when you're adding in the kind of technology that I use, because I, I'm uh, fascinated with sounds that are unknown. So when you hear something that doesn't quite, you don't know what it is to me, that's the most awesome. That's like the, that's the Holy grail, a beautiful sound. And you can't tell what it is. At this point, that's certainly not, I can't do that all the time, but it's a, it's a, it's a direction I'm striving for. Um, so that leads me into these technological worlds of processing the sound or like you're saying, using, uh, what we call live loops or, um, grabbing bits of real time performance and building upon that or doing things like that. Yeah. So I definitely have kind of dug myself into a, a dangerous hole <laughs> using, using the laptop, using special programming language to some of your audience may already know what, I mean, a lot of people know what looping is where you play a little riff and you catch it with the, 
with some kind of digital recorder and it will, it'll loop around and now you can make something on top of it. Right. It's so easy to do that now that I've had to go much further than that and find my own way of doing that where it's not as simple as that, <laughs> where you can, you can build a whole structure and the things are changing key and dropping out and the textures are changing and you're kind of orchestrating a whole, um, little chamber orchestra with that technology, but in some, some, some crazier ways. And yeah, then there's a whole, there's a whole level of, you have to make a piece of music and you have to figure out how to drive the technology at the same time that you're driving the fingers and remember to do the right thing at the right time. So whether that's hit a foot switch, so the sound will change or hit another foot switch to capture a bit of digital recording and another foot switch to change the pitch of it when you're ready to change the pitch and you have to hit the, I'm, I'm making a little foot dance on the floor <laughs> and you have to hit the, you know, I'm now I'm going to the clean sound and I'm going to the distorted sound and then you want it to feel free and comfortable at the same time. So, yeah, so far I've uh, actually, I have had one disaster. I'll tell you about oh. one of my disasters. Oh, I love to hear about disasters. Okay. So, so I have this piece uh, that's called a raucous that I, I wrote years ago with my percussionist buddy, Bob Muller. And it's a kind of an abstracty, funky, little bit weather report sounding, although it probably won't sound like that to other people. Kind of dissonancy, little African-y melodies. And I thought, I'm going to do a solo arrangement of this. So I figured out a way to do it using these technologies. I can put a little string scrape, a little in. I can do a little thump on the guitar, make a kick drum sound, fade in some little chords that come and go throughout the piece, and then I can put in all these melodies. So there's this kind of long building up of these textures, and I'm putting in very long melodies that will, it'll take me 30 seconds to put them in, and then they'll come back a minute later, and I'll add a harmony to them, and then I build up all these textures and I put a bass line down and then I go into a long extended solo and then the melodies come back in a different key and I, and I add another harmony and then it ends. Okay. Okay. So I have this group called three below, um, with two other bass players. I'm, I'm making air quotes, bass players because they're both <laughs> extended range guys. One is, a, uh, my buddy Alonso Ariola from Mexico city. And then another is a California bass player, Michael Manring, who's oh. probably most people would not have any doubt in saying he is the greatest solo bass player, yeah, solo I'm, performing I'm, bass player. I'm familiar with him. Yes. So we, we have a little, a, a, a rarely performed, but we have a little trio where we each play, we play together as a trio, we play in duos and we do solos. So I was playing with him at a, at a club here. I was playing with both of them at a club here in uh, Seattle called the Triple Door. Okay. Beautiful club, great food, maybe one of the best listening rooms here in town. And I came out to do my piece of raucous or they left the stage and I started into it. And I'm using, I'm wearing little headphones that has a click track that nobody else is hearing. So it can kind of keep me together right. and I can tell, I can hear what's going on. And I even have, I'm, I'm releasing a little secret information here, but I even have a couple of vocal cues <laughs> to say, don't forget Here's where the harmony comes in. Oh, okay. Four, wow. three, two, one, go. Just to help me out. So I perform the piece. It's going really well. I'm really rocking it. The solo's blistering. 
And then I come to the final melodies where the melodies are all stacked up and it's building up to this violin and it ends. And I, and, and that was supposed to be the, the intermission point. And okay. I thought this will be really exciting. It ends. And I look out in the audience and there's no applause and everyone's just standing there staring at me. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> and I thought, huh. <laughs> okay. Well, Thank you. We're going to take an intermission. And then I walked off stage and Alonso and Michael are standing there looking at me. And Michael has a little smile on his face. And Alonso's like, man, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, what happened? <laughs> He's like, well, none of your loops were in the house. So oh. what, what that means is that the only thing that was going into the PA was when I was adding something when I was playing something live. So all the, all the percussion-y things and all the bass drummy things and the bass lines and everything that I put into these amazing loops were not there. Oh my God. And sometimes there would be like 30 seconds of silence, (laughs) maybe not 30 seconds, but like 10 or 20 seconds. And then when I did the solo, there's no accompaniment at all. It's just Trey playing solo. And then these weird abstract lines. And so <laughs> Alonso said, you know, he said that he had been talking to Michael and during it, he's like, I should, we should go out there and play with him. And Michael was like, no, just let him do his thing. <laughs> and so it, 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 it turned out they were like, okay, look, when we, why don't you try to get it fixed? And then when we open the second half of the show, you should go out and play it again. So I went out and I said, you know what, guys, I have to let you know that what I was hearing was amazing and you guys weren't hearing it. <laughs> so we're going to try it again. And I did it again and it was all cool. But then when I talked to a couple of people and actually Marcus Reuter, the guy I mentioned earlier, also touched guitarist, he said it was really cool. It was very abstract. And, and some of my yeah. other friends, some of my other friends felt like there wasn't, I hadn't made a mistake, but they just weren't getting it. They were, <laughs> they, they thought that when I was, putting stuff into the loop that they were supposed to remember it and kind of hold it in their mind while I was adding to it. Oh my gosh. So yeah, you, you right. just kind of hit a whole different plane of playing and I, I did without I even did. realizing it. Well, you know, I just, pl- I just thought it's very, it's terrifying to be doing it anyway and you're all by yourself. So I just try to not be, be scared with, of, of, um, I just try not to let the fear of, is this working? And am I going to be able to make it through the piece? I, the way I get through that is I just, I just go into the music and I just listen, I just listen as deep as I can. So that's what I was doing. Well, that's, that's a great story. I can, I, I can imagine sitting there. And I have the a audience. recording of it. I have a recording. I, I, I would almost release it except there's, there's, there's nothing there. Oh my gosh. I would, I would love to hear that. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so let's go back. You have worked with some amazing people starting, well, and not necessarily starting, but uh, where you came into some real prominence was your time with King Crimson. And that yeah. began in 1994. Am I accurate with that? Yeah. I had been um, basically, I, I kind of had a transition with Fripp where I was studying with him and then we started playing together professionally around 87, 88 in a couple of different bands. Um, a band with his wife uh, that we eventually called Sunday All Over the World. Then we had a, 
um, what we call the Robert Fripp String Quintet with the California Guitar Trio, both Robert and I. So we oh. had five string instruments. That was and, an amazing album. Yeah. I love that album. Yeah. And then we both, then, then um, there was a project with David Sylvian and Robert, first as a trio and then flushed out as a five piece, which led into King Crimson in 94, 93, 94, something like that. So when you started yeah. with Crimson, were you were you playing the the Chapman stick or were you playing guitar? Uh, I was playing the Chapman stick okay. initially. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, King Crimson's kind of splintered off into the different projects. Yeah. And but you were involved in every single one of them, and there were um, how were there four projects? Yeah, four. Technically, there were four. There was kind of a, a half one called Project X, which was really just a recording project. Okay. Uh, with Pat and I. Um, yeah, and then there was a project five or six. I don't know, but but during the full <laughs> during the full uh, projects period, that kind of grew out of. Um, the we the, the the crimson that I was involved with in in ninety four through ninety eight ish ninety nine ish ninety eight ish ninety seven ish I can't even remember now <laughs> um, uh, was a six piece with two drummers two stick players like myself and then two guitar players and it was a pretty weldy beast uh, to take around the world and write with and um, the 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 projects what what Robert called kind of the fractalization of the crimson um, grew very organically from uh, a, actually a specific uh, gig in England that, that Bill Bruford had asked Robert to be a part of to improvise for several nights uh, in uh, the jazz cafe in London. And, and Robert said yes, which kind of shocks me at thinking back now that he would do that, but he did. <laughs> he said yes. And then Bill said, well, if we're getting together, we should maybe let's get Tony as well. And Robert said, well, if we're going to have Tony, let's bring Trey. <laughs> <laughs> so it ended up being a four piece. And and from there, and it was completely improvised. We did four nights, two two sets a night. Um, so w when you go in there. Completely improvised. So we even, we even met for a kind of pseudo rehearsal which really was just to see if our gear was working and tony <laughs> proposed tony proposed that we could do a little playing together but not any of the four of us so it had to be some combination of less than the four of us oh, wow. and even when we even when we went on stage we kind of tried to organize some because we had a lot of raw ideas and we kind of tried to organize let's start with this raw idea and then we'll go to this key and as soon as we got on stage we forgot everything every plan that we had Oh, and wow. uh, we just improvised. And um, once you've improvised two full nights, you have nothing left. <laughs> and and when it when it came into the actually it was for me it was the, the the second set of the third night. I mean the third night was already hard enough, but we thought well you know everyone's everyone's felt like they brought all their textures and all their ideas out already and what do we have left well we could do a few of them again 
And then the third, uh, uh, by the second set of the third night, there was nothing left. The well was empty. Oh, man. And you keep going. So by the time we got to the fourth night, some really new stuff was landing. Um, yeah. Wow. That, that's that's you know, and I, I never think of it that way. I always wonder when a band goes out there and then they go into this some kind of jam because you know, ninety nine percent of the bands go out there with a plan and they know what the songs are going to play and they'll do a little improv here and, and there. But you know, it it doesn't seem like it's it, it, we've we've gone out there with no real plan. So um, it sounds like by doing yeah, that, you actually- and also you know, also you have an advantage to having limited vocabulary. Okay. If if you're if you're uh, um, you know I want to use the example of the Grateful Dead. They're not a great example because they were great improvisers. Right. But let's say that's your vocabulary, uh, or let's say your vocabulary is the Allman Brothers. Okay. You can go out and improvise in that style for hours. Oh yeah, yeah. But with Crimson, there's no style. And each of us had such a broad vocabulary and a broad palette to work with that actually it gets more complicated to figure out what to do and how oh. to do it. Okay, I see what um, you're saying. You know, in a way, you have more you have more language to work with. And of course, what would happen is you know Robert would play this crazy sound, and then Tony would respond, and Bill would pull out the marimba. <laughs> okay, now you know now we have a new thing. Um, but yeah, I mean. In my opinion, it's more interesting having that many resources because, of course, an Almond Brothers jam man, ten minutes is plenty enough for me. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we were we were going to the well and coming coming up. You know, there's a lot of mud when you dredge the bottom of the well, but then there's a few there's a few pieces of gold too. So you, you figured that that last night forced you to be even more creative. Yeah, once you, once you, you know, there's this idea that once you, you have a lot of bright ideas and they're great, but once you, they're still all your thought up ideas. Once you've used them all up and now you're kind of open to ideas beyond what you've thought up, then sometimes something magical will drop. Um, but that's not going to happen until you run out of your ideas or you run them into the ground or whatever you use them up or you decide not to use them. I'm not, I, I can't say for sure that that's not going to happen, but that's what happened in that context. We just kept talking until there was no talking left. And then we kept, you know, we kept, we just kind of created really created on the fly. Okay. So you, you've worked with some really interesting and, and a wide diverse group of people. And just to name a few tool and, Pucifer, I, I'm, I'm assuming I'm saying that one right. I never know. If it's in, it's Pucifer. Puss, see, that's what I was saying. That's what I always thought it was. And then someone else said it was, uh, well, never mind. Well, but now actually, I, I've never heard Maynard say it, but that's, I figured, I figured that's what it is. <laughs> that's what it looked like to me. So I'm, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go back to saying it that way. Um, John Paul Jones on Zuma, which I think is a great, incredibly underrated album. Um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, Vernon Reed. Uh, Eric Johnson and, and and Stephen Wilson from Porcupine Tree. Uh, yeah. When when one of those artists reaches out to you, what are they saying? Do they, do they want your specific sound on a track, or do they just want your input, or, or do they just say, "Come in and, and listen to this and uh, see what you think, and maybe you can add something to it." 
Yeah, different different contexts. If it's a, if it's a live kind of um, uh, interactive project, then they're kind of they seem to be looking for the stuff that I do. Um, but generally, uh, I seem to get called generally when or it often happens that people don't know exactly what they want, but they think I'll come up with something. <laughs> they want you, you know, that awesome improv. Surprise, surprise me, especially early on in my, my career in the, in the nineties. And, um, even I didn't know what was in there. Um, and in fact, that's what happened with John Paul Jones. He had a hunch for, he wanted to have a, um, he had been writing the material, uh, that made it onto Zuma. But what he really wanted was a performing group where there were just three musicians and the two front guys, himself and this other character, um, could be either a bass player or a soloist. Okay. And, and you could switch roles, which is something that I have looked for as well because I like doing both roles, but you can't do them both at the same time. So it means you need either several other people or somebody else who can fill both roles. And so John originally contacted me with kind of that proposition that we would, you know, find, form a live band. And the way it, the way it initiated was, um, I met, went to his place in, in London. We shared a manager, David Sylvian's manager, who became King Crimson manager, also managed uh, John Paul Jones. Okay. So that's probably where he heard of me or something. I don't know. Anyway, I went to his house and listened to his stuff. And then um, eventually I flew down to LA when he was recording and played a couple of solos on that record. And what he got out of me on those solos was kind of, was really almost was the beginning of the projects for me oh, okay. was way, was the way I was approaching um, kind of soloing and approaching the projects. He got out of me something I had never done before, which is kind of this slashy, punky, dissonanty um, kind of s abrasive soloing. And so I don't know what he thought he was going to get. <laughs> I may, I wasn't sure what I would do, but I just felt confident that I would do something. And, it really only took about two hours or less to do these two solos. And, um, from that kind of playing, um, now that became a vocabulary wing that I, I used. So, and, and, and then it ended up, I couldn't do the, I couldn't do the, the perform live performing with him because Crimson took off so big. So he ended up using, um, this other stick player, Nick Beggs, British guy, who now Nick is the go-to guy for Steve Hackett and Steve Wilson. He plays bass and stick and guitar. And, ah, okay. And Nick Nick played with played with John Paul for uh, a couple of the tours. One of the tours they we did a double bill with Crimson, so we got to hang out with all of them. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, John John is the unsung hero of Led Zeppelin. I mean, they're all heroes. Yeah. And of course, nobody's unsung, but John. The other guy, you know, Jimmy Page is great. The other guys are great. But John was the secret musical weapon. His musicianship and his ability to uh, orchestrate, you know, he did the orchestrations, he played the acoustic guitars, mandolins, keyboards. Yeah, he was the only he, real multi-instrumentalist in the band. Yeah, he is a top-notch guy. And, and, and not to, you know, take away from Jimmy Page, Page played amazing stuff, but 
as far as I'm concerned, Jimmy's, you know, his playing, I don't know if it left 1974. John just kept kept going and produced the Butthole Surfers and did this record with Diamanda Gallas and writing new music. Yeah, that that album with Diamanda was crazy. He just keeps exploring. And then uh, what was his last big thing? Um, um, The Vultures Band. Oh, yeah, uh, them Crooked Vultures. Yes. uh, Josh from Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah, so... John's a John's a force. Yeah, and, and, and it, was, it was great to work with him. Oh, that, that that's good to hear. I mean, he's a he just like you said, he just keeps moving forward. He's not stuck in the past and uh, yeah. working with current musicians, guys who are relevant now. And it's it's really wild to see. I know he's he's played with uh, Dave Grohl in the past, and I think Dave yeah. Grohl was the other guy in in them Crooked Vultures. Didn't Maybe know, you're right. It. Maybe you're right. I was thinking something to do with the Foo Fighters, but yeah, I think I yeah. think it's it was those three, and that's and, and that's a hell of a band. So yeah, that's, yeah. But now you've you've done some pretty experimental stuff in in your career. Yes. Um, yeah. Bands like, like and, and I think I'm hope I'm pronouncing this right because I'm only going off of some of the videos that I've seen. But uh, K two with uh, yep. Um, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the and I can't believe I'm saying this the accordion player's name Kimo. Yes, Kimo. Kimo. That's plenty enough. Okay, just call him Kimo. <laughs> and, uh, and and Pat. His last name is Pugionen, but oh, Kimo. Yeah. So so. Pat Masolato, the Crimson drummer, and I had a we made a duo called Two, and we still do shows periodically when when Pat's not so he's the busiest guy in the world. Oh, but he I love Pat. His drumming is amazing. Yeah, so we have this duo Two that uses it's more electronic, heavy electronic and and raunchy guitar electronic music, and uh, we we started doing some shows. I don't know, 10, 15 years ago where we would go somewhere. And I think we kind of debuted in Russia. And the idea was we'd do a couple of nights, a lot of improvisation, but then we'd use some kind of local musicians to come in and join our show. So it was kind of two plus whatever. Oh, that's, that's a great a singer idea. or we had a, a, a very experimental uh, Polish guitar player once. And, 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 and so Pat had this idea that we've got to work with chemo and eventually we got together with chemo and, so we called it K2, KTU. And um, chemo, chemo does, just like I was saying with John Paul Jones, he, he and I are that kind of a partner where he's got this, uh, first of all, he, I don't even know how to describe his accordion playing. He's, <laughs> he, you know, he's like, he's like possessed. He's, he's a possessed accordion player. He was, I've seen the videos. He's insane. Yeah, yeah. So he's a very unusual character. He's Finnish, so that already puts him in a strange category. <laughs> and um, his accordion is—he's—he's uh, he, he's able to uh, trigger samples and play super fat, low bass lines. So I can do the same thing with him that John was looking for, which is I can be the bass player to his solos and melodies, and then we can just switch, and now I can solo and he can be the bass player. So it's a—it's a. It's a perfect pairing between the three of us and uh unfortunately we don't get to play enough shows because everybody's all over the place and we have no shows this year but um oh, last year we were in poland for a couple of shows and hopefully we'll do some more shows next year well you guys would be wearing the kilts uh the kilts come and go my kilt <laughs> idea actually um not only is my family name from scotland but also chemo wears this kind of um 
it's like a Japanese style long dress. And so I thought, well, if he's going to do that, I can wear a kilt. And uh, I've kind of retired the kilt for the moment, oh, but man. Uh, it could come back. It, it could come back. It looked really comfortable. Aren't they? I mean, oh, it's nice really comfortable. <laughs> it's really great. I, I actually came across the kilt because, well, Utila Kilts is here in Seattle. And I was going to buy one for my dad for kind of a joke. <laughs> and I went in there and was sizing and stuff. And the guy was like, you should try one on. I was like, ah. was like, okay, go on, try, try one on. And what they do is there's no dressing room. Oh, okay. So the way you try on the kilt is he brings it over. He wraps it around your pants, puts it on you, and then you drop your pants. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, so the way you try the kilt is you're standing in the room with your pants around your ankles and the kilt on. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is pretty awesome. It's liberating. So, so I ended up buying actually two kilts. I bought uh, wow. uh, like the fancy dress one that I wore on stage. And then I bought one that basically looks like those long 1970s basketball shorts with a stripe down the side <laughs> and the basketball material. Yes. But it's, it's, uh, it's actually, uh, it's kind of like a hang around the house pajama kilt. Oh, hey, everybody needs one of those. I'm going to look into that. Yeah. With with all these experimental wild bands that you do, have you ever come across anything that was just too far out there for you? Wow, that's a great question. I don't think so. Um, I don't know what that would be like. That was that's good to hear because you do some pretty wild out there stuff, and I and I, I love hearing what what you're coming up with and. Uh, to know that you don't have a boundary. No, I, I think it would be, you know, I think the, the, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I'm going to think about that over the next couple of weeks. I, I mean, I think for me it would be, um, the thing where I would be uncomfortable is if, um, the other musicians aren't, well, if they're not really listening to what they're doing and they're just kind of making noise. Okay. You know, the, 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 the you can play noise and you can speak what is noisy sounds, but it, it's not noise. You're, you're, you're using it, you know? Right. So I guess for me that would, that's where it gets interesting is somebody's chosen these, let's say these particular noisy sounds for their vocabulary and they've gone into how to use them. It could be anything, you know, kind of like the art of noise from the early eighties. It's yeah. early eighties. Yeah. yeah. So You've gotten into uh, coaching, being a creative coach to musicians and artists. And yeah. how, did, how did that yeah. start? It started from uh, being a frustrated teacher. Okay, that's a good place <laughs> uh, because, to start. Because I, um, because, I, um, because I play such a strange instrument, people would always, uh, throughout my career, people would come to me who wanted to play the instrument and ask me to, to study with me. And they would come. And I would show them what they needed to do, and then they would go away and never come back ever again. Okay. And I thought, well, okay, that's fine. I mean, they're they they weren't really serious, or I'm maybe I'm not presenting it right because I don't I didn't have a curriculum. I didn't have a I, I didn't have a curriculum. It was basically, what are you trying to do? Oh, you want to know how to do this? Okay, well, this is what you've got to do in order to be able to do that. Here's what you've got to do to be able to play this kind of strange rhythm on the instrument. Um, and they would try. And I was like, well, actually, you need to back up two steps and learn to do this. Go do this. You know, and I didn't say, like, 
come back in six months, but basically you can't do what you're trying to do unless you learn to do this first. And then they would go away. And I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they never played the instrument again. I really don't know. Um, and that combined with um, uh, ba- basically a lot of work uh, that go uh, – that the, these other learning models that I came across. One was uh, the way we work – uh, at my Aikido Dojo, which is a, a, a more craft school approach where there is a sensei master who presents a technique, but everyone is at a different level and everyone is teaching uh, okay. to the levels below them and learning from whatever levels above. So this kind of, uh, I guess you learn by teaching, basically. Okay. That combined with uh, just this other model of that, that there's not a master teacher and you've got to learn. Uh, the secret stuff from them that combined with uh, a friend of mine was studying parent coaching. And I started to look at the parent coaching models and kind of, it just clicked for me. Oh, this coaching model is really different in teach teaching. And then the difference I'll, I'll kind of explain real quickly how mm-hmm. I see it uh, uh, with teaching. I have secret information and you want that information and you come to me and I either tell it to you over time because it's complicated or I show you the path to kind of acquire that information. And now you have the information that I have and you can do what I can do with it. Right. Um, with coaching, basically I, the short story is I found a, I found a way that worked and now I suddenly had people who came to me and we would keep working. And the model that I came up with was basically you come to me with something that you want to do. And now I ask you a billion questions about it to figure out one, if that's really what you want to do and what's the unique characteristic about it. Um, the coaching model is more of an inquiry of how you, what's your motivation for this thing and what's your pathway. Why should I show you my pathway and my means? You're just going to end up as a clone of what I do. That's stupid. Right. You have your own artistic musical DNA. I have mine. Let's develop yours instead of me just giving you mine. That's that doesn't make any sense to me. It's it's it feels like a waste of time. It feels like a waste of my energy and it feels like a waste of your time on the planet. That makes sense. Um, I real I realized that there's there's you know there's different methods where you do one for a while and then switch to the other, but I kind of I'm, after having done this for about a decade now I'm pretty convinced that you can just start with what what are you interested in where are you curious what do you notice about the world okay. what instrument are you playing and why and what are the things that are interested in you and how can you learn to do those things and so I've kind of been working with a broad spectrum of musicians. I worked with musicians who I don't play their instrument at all. I have, I had a guy out of Chicago who played harmonica and he didn't need harmonica lessons. He had a great harmonica teacher, but he was looking for ways to, to find his own voice and build a build a musical, uh, a creative process that reinforced his way and that's the key to it. That's the difference, I think, from being a teacher. Being a teacher is kind of like, here's the way. Okay, go do this. And coaching is like, well, let's make sure that you're on the right path for where you're going. 
So okay. it's a little, if, I don't know, if, is, is all that making sense? It is, it is. It actually is. It's uh, in, instead of making a, a clone of the teacher, you're teaching somebody to be their own person and, and, and forge their own path. Yeah. And, and it, I, it, it makes a difference what skills you practice. That starts to inform the language you use and the voice that you speak with. So um, because we're not learning German, which means you've got to learn German vocabulary and how German, you know, verbs are conjugated. We're making up, you know, if you're really going to find your own, to, to have a unique voice, you kind of need to, for better or worse, you have to do extra work that other people who are going to, um, if you want to play country Western music or uh, hard bop jazz or punk rock, the vocabulary is already there. You just need to go pick it off the shelf, whatever the shelf looks like, and learn it. But if you're making um, – and there's plenty of tutorials and books on any kind of style genre that you want. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, then, then you need a teacher. Um, what I do that's a little more specialized is if you want to find something utterly unique and there is no curriculum, there's no pathway because – you're going to go your own way to quote Fleetwood Mac. Um, <laughs> that's a, a, a much more precarious and, and really quite difficult path because it does matter. You, you kind of need to, to go through all the materials and piss on all the corners and say, do I want this? Do I want rhythms to work like this? Do I want these chords? Do I, which kind of chords do I want? What do I like about melodies? Maybe I don't like melodies. Maybe I only want rhythms. Which rhythms? Um, it becomes a, a, a kind of a, a deeper interaction with the material when you have to decide which materials suit your aim. And that's where I kind of come into the picture to, to kind of help figure out, you know, help help the my coaching clients figure out what, what suits their aims and, you know, Maybe I do have technical information. Maybe I, maybe I don't. Maybe I need to send them somewhere else. But in terms of putting together the, the, their, their creative process that's going to work for their aims, that's, that's where I come into the picture. <laughs> well, I've got one more question to ask you, and then I'll let you go for the evening. Um, okay. When we were setting this interview up, you had mentioned performance anxiety dreams and that yeah. was intriguing to me. And yeah. so what, uh, have you had performance anxiety dreams and, and what's the worst ones that you had? Well, okay. So a little background. Yes, I have had them. And, um, I actually have had them the last two nights oh. and I'll, I'll come to that in a second. Normally, um, what I, what I found with a lot of people is there's, um, they have their kind of anxiety dreams leading up to a tour or leading up to a recording session. Okay. That makes sense. For me, it's not like that at all. I do the whole tour and everything's cool. And then I come home and then I start having the anxiety dreams. Oh, well, so somehow, somehow my psyche is like holding it together the whole time. <laughs> and then when I get home and I can let go of the actual activity, then all the anxiety flops in and it's always been like that for me. And, wow. um, so I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of amusing examples, but I'll, I'll tell we, we, we all, all of my years working with, with Robert Fripp, we always kind of have shared 
what's going on in our dream life because it's it's amusing and funny and, and oftentimes very relevant to what's going on. And Robert has told us many times over the years about this kind of reoccurring nightmare. He ha- a King Crimson nightmare he has where he's playing a big outdoor festival and it's crimson and they're playing schizoid man and everyone is facing away and walking away. Oh, wow. And they're just leaving in droves oh, while he's playing schizoid man. God. And so my dreams are a little bit different than that. My <laughs> dreams are pretty consistently. Um, I get to this, I get to the first crimson show and um, I haven't practiced. I haven't come to any of the rehearsals and I get on stage and I look at the set list and I don't recognize any of the songs and we begin and there's no strings on my instrument. Oh my God. <laughs> or, or, you know, I had, I've had one once where I'm outside of the big arena that we're playing and everyone's on the stage and I hear music on the stage, but I'm standing outside, outside of the gates with my instrument and like a <laughs> 500 foot long cord and people are walking past me going in and I don't know what's going on. Oh. <laughs> um, one of the most amusing ones was this similar one with getting on stage, not knowing, not having practiced at all, which of course with Crimson, you have to do a lot of practice. Yeah. I get on stage and I look down at the set list and I don't recognize any of the songs. And I look over at Robert and he's playing, um, Brandy, you're a fine girl. Oh. <laughs> and, and I don't know what to do, you know? So so there's those, that's kind of, that's kind of the way it is for me. And I, after wow. about a week they're, they're, they're gone, but funny enough, Crim- Crimson has just started up and I'm not involved in the current Crimson. They played a couple of shows and the last two nights I've had, I've had Crimson anxiety nightmares and it's been similar, but a little more practical. Like for some reason I'm joining the band for this one night, Okay, but, but Tony's not going to be there. The other bass player. In fact, Actually, the two dreams that I had, the two nights of dreams, it was only Pat and Robert and I. And I haven't practiced the material, but I think I can kind of fake my way through Schizoid Man, (laughs) and um, which is not easy to do without a couple of weeks of warm up. And, you know, and we're going to do a bunch of improvising. And then I get on stage and I only have a couple of strings on my instrument. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that's what, that's what triggered my, when, when you said the the show was called performance anxiety, I was like, you know, I actually don't have, except for that kind of flash right before I go on stage, I don't have too much anxiety until I get home from a tour and then it all, then it all crashes in. That's really interesting. Isn't it? It's a a nice kind of, it's a nice kind of safety net. Yeah. You know, it's good to have, if if you do it backwards, then maybe it's not so bad. Yeah. So if, if, uh, the listeners are trying to find some of your music. Where can they find music to purchase? Uh, you know, the best place um, for me and uh, my record label, 7D Media, is actually on Bandcamp. And oh, Bandcamp. Uh, because the, the you get digital downloads in any format and you can buy CDs that get shipped out to you. And um, so you I, and I can't remember the address. I think you probably just go to my website and click on the store. Or you go to the 7D Media website. And click on the store, and it takes you right to Bandcamp. Okay. Well, you know, since since you brought it up, I, I, if I can ask one more question, yeah. it's, it's something yeah. that's always uh, been on my mind, uh, especially in the age of digital downloads. Which I honestly prefer having something in my hands to a digital download, but yeah. like a Ted Nugent vinyl. 
Um, is there still a big gap between, let's say, a FLAC file and the high-quality MP3s, or has that gap lessened? Um, for me, there's not a big enough difference. Um, and, you know, I'm supposedly an audio expert. I'm not really an audio <laughs> expert. I do. I, I have a, my own jukebox, and I make um, high-quality MP3s, and those are fine. When I archive stuff, I do keep it in uh, like kind of flat quality level wave files or AIF, just because if we get a new if we get a new file format in the future, this is kind of a rawer version, and I can turn that into the new file format. Okay, if that makes sense. Whereas I don't know what will happen if I turn an MP3 into you know an MP9, and then some other day we turn it into you know what I mean. Yeah. So uh, that's that's. But I, I think they sound pretty darn good these days. And and we know that in the commercial music industry, you can you can send high-quality MP3s around for commercial work, and um, they're totally acceptable. Okay. Well, that, that kind of settles it for me then. Trey, thank you so much, man. I really do appreciate your time. I, I know I went a little long tonight, so... I'll come I, back. There we go. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. That was fun. Thank you, too. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.